All right. Hey, hello, and welcome to the seventh installment of Dialogue Gospel Study. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz, a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, and I'll be conducting today from my home in Provo, Utah. If this is your first time tuning in, a special welcome, and we invite you to check out previous lessons, which are available either as podcasts or in video format at dialoguejournal.com, where you can also find the entire 50 plus years of the journal. I'm going to start with just a couple of announcements. Uh, we're back in our webinar format, and I think that you must have all gotten the right link this time around. Um, there are the right, correct number of Taylor Petries, as much as we would like to clone him. Um, we're happy to just have one with us today. Uh, the big downside, if you'll recall, uh, to this format is that you can't scroll through and see each other, um, but it does allow us to eliminate the extraneous noise that comes from folks accidentally unmuting themselves and some other distractions. We invite you, as always, to respectfully make comments and ask questions that are related to our teacher's message using the chat function. Please note that you can address just presenters or presenters and other attendees, which is probably the one you want to use. Dialogue Board Chair Michael Austin may also show up on your screen. He's taking care of some technical issues, uh, as well as fellow board member and sometime host, Christian Kimball, who will be helping to track some of what's going on in chat today and may help facilitate some discussion at the end. Uh, if you're trying to join us on our live Facebook stream, we think we're having some technical difficulties, but we hope that that will get worked out. Um, we also know that there are some issues whenever we do screen sharing on our end, it seems that we need to restart um, the live stream. So um, if any of you are technical whizzes and know an end run around that issue, we would love to know. Um, but we will be restarting that as needed, and hopefully if that gets up and running, we'll have lots of you joining us from there. Uh, we are thrilled today to have as our guest teacher, Fiona Gibbons. Uh, Fiona is a member of the BYU Maxwell Institute's research staff. She was born in Nairobi, educated in British convent schools, and later converted to the LDS Church. She earned degrees in French, German, and in European history while co-raising six children. Fiona has worked as a lobbyist, a translator, and as chair of a French language program. She's a frequent speaker on podcasts and at conferences. Her work has been published with Grade Coford Books, Exponent 2, LDS Living, Journal of Mormon History, and of course Dialogue, as well as other venues. Uh, in addition to co-writing The God Who Weeps, she is the joint author of The Crucible of Doubt, Reflections on the Quest for Faith, and The Christ Who Heals, How God Restored the Truth That Saves Us. Uh, as I hope you know, uh, and this is likely the reason that you're tuning in with us, Dialogue is committed to providing a space for the expression of diverse perspectives and for some of Mormonism's most vibrant thinking. We're grateful for uh, Fiona's uh, preparation today, both spiritual and intellectual. And as in any Latter-day Saint Sunday School class, the views expressed today will be those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect the Dialogue Foundation or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or any other faith-based organization. Um, in addition to being able to feature some really amazing teachers, I have loved that we've also been able to introduce you at least a little bit uh, to some members of the Dialogue Board, as well as to highlight some of our authors and some other amazing people through our prayers for these sessions. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that we do um, these more academic style introductions for other participants. Our opening prayer today will be offered by Dr. Emily January-Peterson, who is an assistant professor in the English department at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah. Emily leads scholarly conversations in her field about women in technical and professional communication through her, her qualitative research in the United States, India, South Africa, and Botswana. Her research focuses on professional identities and organizations from a feminist perspective by examining social media, uncovering archival sources, and conducting interviews. She's received several awards for teaching and research, and her publications have appeared in a number of academic journals. 
She was a research assistant for the book At the Pulpit, 185 Years of Discourses by Latter-day Saint Women. And most recently, her article, Women's Lived Experience as Authority, Antinarratives and Interactional Power as Tools for Engagement, was published in Dialogue's Amazing Exponent 2 guest edited spring 2020 issue. Uh, before Emily prays for us, um, we are thrilled today to have music featuring Brian Stuckey. Um, Brian uh, is an accomplished uh, oratorial soloist and cellist who has performed across the globe, including such venues as Avery Fisher Hall and Carnegie Hall. Uh, he is also the vocal area director and professor at the Horn School of Music at Snow College. Uh, he lives and thrives in Spring City, Utah, where he um, also raises chickens and children in addition to uh, teaching music uh, and is part of the city's historical society. Uh, so we'll go ahead with our music and then a prayer and then we'll turn the time over to Fiona for the lesson. to be here this morning, gathered as saints, to 
listen to that beautiful music and to hear the lesson from Sister Gibbons. We're thankful for her preparation and please bless that we will learn from her, increase our faith and find ways to become better people based on what we learn. We're grateful for the gospel in our lives, for dialogue and these Sunday school lessons. We appreciate the ability that we have to gather and learn from each other. Please help us to remember our Savior this day and his atonement for us and keep him in our hearts always. We're grateful for what he has done for us and we're grateful for our many blessings. Please bless those around the world who are struggling and suffering and that we may find ways to help them, keep them in our thoughts and prayers and work to make the world a better place together. We're grateful for all that we have again and we say these things in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ, amen. Are you ready for me to start? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. That was beautiful. Um, the music was um, very moving and thank you for the prayer. I am very grateful. Um, we, I think a lot of people do this. I'm certainly going to. Um, our, our reading today is Mosiah 18 to 24, but we're really not going to get out of Mosiah 18. And Mosiah 18 is going to um, provide a springboard um, into um, a number of other areas. But I, I need to um, give some caveats. I think this is the way I approach the gospel of Je Jesus Christ. And, and these are important for me in my own um, study of sacred texts, um, particularly the Bible. Joseph said that many things in the Bible do not, as they now stand, accord with the revelation of the Holy Ghost to me. Um, he made over 3,000 changes to the biblical text before, pardon? Oh, yeah, uh, before, um, before he was killed. And um, it is likely that he may, may have made more significant ones had he lived longer. Um, when God speaks to the people, this is Brigham Young. He actually says some really wonderful things. When God speaks to the people, he does it in a manner to suit their circumstances and capacities. Should the Lord Almighty send an angel to rewrite the Bible, it would in many places be very different from what it is now. And I will even venture to say that if the Book of Mormon were now to be rewritten in many instances, it would materially differ from the present translation. According as people are willing to receive the things of God, so the heavens send forth their blessings. Um, and then, um, no, I, I, I'm not sure that that's particularly important, but I do love um, Joseph's magnanimity and uh, as far as other religious traditions uh, are concerned and um, searching for truth therein. If the Presbyterians have any truth, he said, the Baptist Methodists, if he lived, lived now, he would probably include Muslims and other religious groups embrace that. Get all the good in the world in order to come out a pure Mormon. And then in Doctrine and Covenants concerning the Apocrypha, God says there are many things contained then therein that are true. And we're going there today. Um, and then also in DNC 109, seek out of the best books, words of wisdom. So um, we are being encouraged to expand um, our reading into all sorts of different um, areas. So they, those, are, those are my caveats. Um, and then maybe they will make sense. So in Mosiah 18, what struck me is if we change the beginning of the story, we change the middle and we change the end. Eve is um, the primary example of unselfish courage. Her heroine, uh, she is heroine of the human family, deserving encomiums of praise, as President Sarah Kimball said, for launching the trial by mortality, the necessary experiences needed to help us become little Christ. We, in our tradition, therefore, we refer to an ascent to mortality, not a fall. We are born wounded into a wounded world. We are not sinful from conception. We may be wounded from conception. Into this veil of tears in which we can but look into a glass darkly, the promised Messiah comes to heal us from our wounds, be they psychological, emotional, or physical, or all three. 
The cross is part of Christ's own journey, not the end. Christ's mission was to bring life, resurrection, and the more abundant life, immortality, and eternal life. We are not passive recipients of God's grace. And when I look at um, some of the other traditional religions, I find that we are passive. We, um, grace is imputed to us. There is nothing that we can do um, on our own to help ourselves, to help others. Um, we're just dragged along. Uh, some people have called us um, semi-Pelagians. I'm going to make the um, the stand that we are Pelagians. Uh, he and his followers condemned Augustine's position, he said, because it threatened to undermine the whole foundation of Christian life as an active and loving cooperation between God and man. I think this is huge. And we are cooperative people. Um, we have been called to reunite, reunite the entire human family to the divine family, temple work, and to create Zion, loved the opening hymn. A people of one heart and mind dwell in happiness for there are no poor among them. All are welcome, no one is ostracized. And the Lord said unto Enoch, there we will receive them into our bosom and they shall see us and we will fall upon their necks and they shall fall upon our necks and we will kiss each other. We have such an optimistic view of the end. Um, I have spoken about the fact that I believe that this is a global Zion, not just a, a church Zion. We are, of course, all of God's children. Now, we're going to Messiah 18.5. There are, um, well, Messiah 18, if we turn there, um, there are some things that um, I would like to emphasize because they're going to um, impact what I'm going to be saying following um, the baptism. Um, Messiah 18.5, we are told that there is a fountain of pure water. Near the water was a thicket. The thicket is later... Um, uh, termed a forest it would be very difficult to hide in a thicket from Noah and his army thicket could also be used as a grove of trees we are familiar with that terminology in Messiah 1810 um, we are asked what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord as a witness before him that ye have entered into a covenant with him again this idea of collaboration we are collaborating with deity in 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 their work um, that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you so we are going to be looking to, at terminology we have a fountain of pure water and we have a holy spirit being poured out on us in moses eighteen thirteen, the spirit of the lord was upon him and he said i baptize thee having the authority from the Almighty God. And we are going to be spending some time with the Almighty God. But let's look at what covenants we make. In Messiah 18.8, we covenant that we will bear one another's burdens. And I'm assuming that refers to humanity and not just members of the church. That we be willing to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. What I find so extraordinary about these covenants is that each of them represent a member of the Godhead. The God who bears our burdens all the way through his life into Gethsemane and to Golgotha, of course, is God the Christ. The God who mourns with us when we mourn is the God of Moses 7 and Jacob 5, God the Father. And the God who comforts those who stand in need of comfort, of course, is God the Holy Spirit. This is incredibly exciting um, because we have been invited to collaborate in the atoning work of the deity exemplified by the Son, these are all efforts to heal. They are all processes in, in healing others, um, bearing burdens, mourning and comforting. 
Um, and for me, that's incredibly exciting. It is not to say that there are millions of people around the world engaged in these um, particular activities. What is so exciting for me is that uh, we as members of the Church of Jesus Christ have made covenants so to do. And I find that the presence of the Godhead um, ratifies and sanctifies those covenants with their covenant that they will aid us um, and pour out the spirit upon us when we are engaged in those in those things. All right. And so now we're going to go to the interesting part. Um, it's funny, I had not noticed in reading Mosiah 18 before that God Almighty is mentioned. Um, in 1st Nephi th um, 32:13, we are told that we suffer. This is the 1830 version, not the one we have now, but we are told that we suffer an awful woundedness because of the loss of the plain and precious things. One of the greatest of those plain and precious things has to be Heavenly Mother. That she has been lost to the, um, to the Christian tradition. But we, um, we have brought her back, at least um, verbally. Um, have, um, Joseph taught that we have a Heavenly Mother. Eliza Snow's hymn was canonized. Um, and, and, and this is a huge part, but we don't know very much about her. Um, and this goes back to the biblical text. We need to, um, there, there are words and leitmotifs that if we understand, they sort of um, are woven together to create this incredible, incredibly beautiful tapestry of the feminine deity, feminine deity whom we um, whom we worship. Now, it's not just literary texts, and I am going to be quoting from Jubilees. There is also uh, quite a bit of archaeological evidence that has been discovered and um, and, and and continuing to be so. So, we have at an archaeological site called Kuntilat Ajwud an inscription on. Um, a piece of pottery um, with the words, I bless you by Yahweh and by his Asherah. Okay, I need to back up. Um, Heavenly Father has many names. He is known as the man of holiness. His name is worlds without end. His name is everlasting. And Heavenly Mother also has many names. And these are the names um, we know. Um, she is called Shaddai, God Almighty. Um, that El Shaddai is translated as God Almighty in the um, in the Old Testament. She is known as Shekinah. She is known as Wisdom. She is known as Asherah. And in early Syriac Christianity in particular, she is known as the Holy Spirit. So this is Asherah. This is one of her names. Um, there, a lot of garments were woven by women for the menorah, the tree of life who represents um, Heavenly Mother, both in the Wilderness Tabernacle and in the Temple in Jerusalem. Um, and at these sites, uh, particularly at Kuntalit um, Ajrud, the quality of the textiles that were discovered are excellent. Um, weavers wove garments for the menorah, and the weavers were women. Also, loom loom weights have been discovered in a number of places, including Telmikne Akron, as well as olive presses. And as we're going to discover, um, olive oil is really important in the worship of the feminine deity. So what I'm going to try and do is, I think we won't have time to go beyond Shaddai, but to show how consistent the, the modes of worship are to each of these, the one deity represented by different names. It's quite extraordinary. We think sometimes that um, the tabernacle, the incense altar was started with Moses, but that is not so. It started um, in the patriarchal text. It started with um, Abraham. Um, there is in Tel Tanakh a very famous cult stand which has four registers. 
In the first register, Asherah is standing on a lion and she is associated with lions. And then in the third register, we have the sacred tree. So you have Asherah being compared to, or is actually the sacred tree of life. Um, the lions are there represented and then there are two ibexes flanking the tree and that's not an uncommon image to see. So I just wanted to say that, you know, the archaeologists are coming to, um, to the rescue, to the restoration, restoration of Heavenly Mother. Um, let's see. Now, why the traces of Heavenly Mother, when we only have traces of Heavenly Mother, the biblical record is due primarily to King Josiah, um, who reigned um, towards the end of the 7th um, century BCE. Um, he was in the time of Lehi. So this is really, really interesting because we have Lehi and we have King Josiah and King Josiah. We're not entirely sure why. Maybe he wanted to consolidate religious and political ecclesiastical power in Jerusalem. Um, the Babylonians were already making incursions, but um, maybe he thought, you know, just bringing everything to Jerusalem. But it was, it was a purge. It was an incredible destructive reform. Um, a book of the law is discovered in the temple and um, this discovery spurs Josiah into wholesale, wholesale reform of the religious tradition. In the text that comes down to us, of course, Josiah is portrayed as the good king banishing evil from his kingdom and that evil, of course, is heavenly mother primarily. And so one would one would think that he would, you know, as Hulda promised him, the prophet is Hulda, that he would suffer peaceful death. He didn't actually. He ignored all advice not to go up against um, the, the Egyptian king and was killed. And his death was really quite painful. I can't say that I'm particularly sorry, really. Um, one of the, the, his attack was on the menorah and all of the places where Heavenly Mother was worshipped. Um, he had the menorah in the temple, which is really huge, dragged out of the temple, destroyed, burned. Um, and, and this is, the, she represents this tree of life. This is the tree of life who is at the beginning of the um, biblical narrative in the Garden of Eden. And she is also at the end. She is Alpha and Omega. In Revelation 22, 1 to 2, she stands at the river, and we've talked about this pure river um, where the baptisms are being taken place, adjacent to the throne, and her leaves are for the healing of the nations. It is interesting, there's a scholar called Hamilton Kelly, and he's actually suggesting that Jesus was um, her envoy, was the envoy of um, the mother, uh, particularly in the wisdom texts. So Josiah had her dragged out of the temple, burned her ashes. There are several stories were either scattered over a common grave in the Kidron Valley or sent, interestingly, to Bethel. And I'm actually leaning towards Bethel. It is assumed that everything associated with her worship, including the altar of incense and the table of the shewbread, were also destroyed. In addition, Josiah ordered the destruction of all other sacred sites including other temples, sanctuaries standing in or near the high places or groves in which incense altars and pillars on which libations were poured were to be found. Um, and and, the, and I, I want us to focus because we're going to see incense altars, pillars and olive oil um, coming back again and again in this, in this narrative. So let's start with El Shaddai. What can be agreed so this name is, is really contested. What can be agreed by scholars is that this is a really, really ancient name. Um, the Abrahamic faith was the original faith. The Pentateuch presented her culture as belonging to the remote past. When King Josiah purged the religion of his kingdom, what he abolished are the customs and traditions of the patriarchs. Going back to the very begin, beginning, incense altars throughout the land, anointed pillars and sacred uh, trees. The patriarchs had known God as El Shaddai, not Yahweh. 
um, when she appears to Abraham, she says in Exodus 6.3, I appear to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by the name God Almighty. And that is the translation. Um, El Shaddai, God Almighty, occurs 48 times in the Hebrew Bible, with the exception of the Tetragrammaton YHWH, no divine name has generated as much controversy as El Shaddai. Some scholars have opted for the Akkadian compound Shaddu, meaning mountain, as the root of Shaddai. Most recently, however, some scholars are taking the challenge to suggest that a better choice would be the Hebrew compound Shad, meaning breast. When breast rather than mountain is privileged, then the hypothesis that Shaddai was originally the name or epithet of a goddess virtually imposes itself. This hypothesis is reinforced by the fact that in the ancient Near East, breastfeeding was a divine act, imparting divinity, divine authority, and divine protection, suggesting that Shaddai's divine powers were extensive. In Genesis 12, 23, Shaddai covenants with Abraham. I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And in thee, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And there builded he an altar unto God Shaddai, who, who appeared upon him. This is, um, who appeared to him. This is going to become probably more obvious but the altar on which he offered a burnt offering is probably not an animal. Uh, a burnt offering can also be and was used as grain with um, frankincense poured on it. We will go into that in, in future, but I am suggesting that the um, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, um, the patriarchs did not actually offer animal sacrifices. They offered a different offering. Okay, in Jubilees, in the fifth year of the fourth week of the Jubilee in the third month, in the middle of the month, Abram, his name hasn't been changed, made a feast of the first fruits of the harvest of grain, and he offered up a sacrifice upon the altar, which was the first fruits of the harvest of grain, and a fruit offering, and a libation. Okay, so these are a little concerns. So what, what I'm putting it down to, fruits of the harvest of grain are offered upon the altar with frankincense. The libation um, would most certainly refer to um, olive oil being poured, actually, on a pillar, another altar. And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, I am God Shaddai. I will make my covenant between you and I will increase you very much. Behold, my ordinance covenants is with you, and you will be the father of many nations. And I shall give to you your seed after you the land where you sojourn, the land of Canaan, which you will possess forever. And I shall be a God for them. In Jubilees 17.3, And the morning and the evening, Abram offered the fragrance of frankincense and galbanum and stacte and nard and myrrh, and spices, and costum. All seven of these he offered, crushed, mixed in equal parts, and pure. And he observed this feast of the booths seven days, rejoicing with all his heart and with all his soul, he and all those within his house. And Abraham took branches of palm leaves, really important tree, and fruit of good trees, and each day of the, and each day of the day, he used to go around the altar with the branches of the palm leaves seven times per day in the morning. He was praising and giving thanks to God for all things burned. It is interesting that the incense made to be burned in front of the menorah in the wilderness tabernacle um, was made of exactly the same ingredients in Exodus 30, 34, 37 Sweet spices, stacta, onica, galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense of each, there shall be a like weight, and thou shalt make it a perfume, pure and holy. The perfume burned before the menorah 
the tree of life representing Heavenly Mother. Isn't it terribly exciting? It's just terribly exciting. Um, let's see. <sighs> okay, so the menorah is a stylized almond tree and she represents the tree of life. So we'll jump to her because she makes her appearance um, most specifically in, in the story of Moses. And um, he is instructed to make the candlestick, the menorah of pure gold, beaten work, meaty the candlestick, the shaft, the branch, the bowls. And then there, there, there is the emphasis on almonds being used as a knop of flour, three bowls made like almonds at another branch, a knop and a flower. So we've got almonds going on. It is suggested, has been suggested, and I think we may be able to prove conclusively that the tree, um, the menorah, was a stylized almond tree. Olive oil was burned in the candles to give light to the tabernacle. And then in the temple, it has been suggested that the menorah's place was originally in the Holy of Holies. Otherwise, the high priest, when he came in to offer incense, would not have known that incense had filled the Holy of Holies if there had been no light. Um, okay, so, and then we also back, go back to the budding rod of Aaron, which is kept in the ark, and that was an almond tree as well. So this is, this is important, this tree. All trees, actually, essentially, may refer to the tree of life, but um, in particular, particular palm trees and almond trees. Okay, and then this is Isaac blessing his son Jacob. I hope everybody's fine. We're not bored, are we? Are we all doing well? Are we all good? Splendid. So this is Isaac's blessing to his son Jacob. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people. And that's in Genesis 28, 3 to 4. So we're seeing a pattern here of covenants being made with the patriarchs. And then we all remember um, um, Jacob's dream at Bethel. And he wakes up and he was afraid. And he says, how dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, Bethel. And this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillars and set up a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Oh, isn't exciting. Who could that God be who appeared Ah, but then we find out in Genesis 31, I am the God of Bethel, where thou anointest the pillar and where thou vowedest a vow unto me. It is interesting. Um, pillars are used for covenant making. In fact, it's interesting that Josiah stood by a pillar and made a covenant to the Lord. We read in 2 Kings 23 um, verse three. So it's not unusual that pillars are involved in, in fact, it is usual, it's quite common practice. Um, and then with Jacob, El Shaddai changes his name to Israel. She's already changed, um, obviously, Abraham's name to Abraham and reiterates the covenant made early to his grandfather. God said unto him, I am El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply and a company of nations shall be of thee. The location of the covenant is a sacred site of Bethel, otherwise named Luz, where Jacob had built an altar because there God appeared unto him. Later, Jacob tells his son Joseph of his dream vision. And Jacob said unto Joseph, Shaddai appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply the end I will make of thee a multitude of people. Luz in Hebrew means almond. Oh, it's so exciting. And Laban, oh, okay, so this is another come. So Laban, his father-in-law, is really concerned that Jacob is now so strong that he might come and um, you know, take vengeance on of him for switching around the switches of the, which, the the sisters as um as a bride. So he approaches Jacob and he said and they erect a pillar behold this pillar which I have cast betwixt thee and thee and this pillar be witness that I will not pass over this heap to thee and thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me for harm the God of Abraham judge betwixt us 
And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered sacrifice on the mount, also an important place where um, where 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 God will be seen, um, as we can see in Moses, or not seen if you're reading it according to the Deuteronomists. Um, and he called his brethren to eat bread, and they did eat bread and tarried all night on the mount. I might be making too much of this. But this idea of making bread, making cakes in uh, in the worship of the female deity is common. And as the, as the deity is um, calling herself the God of Abraham, I'm suggesting, um, I, I have not found any um, corroboration for this, but I'm suggesting that this idea of making cakes or bread also formed part of the worship. Um, Okay, this, I think, this verse has probably, for people who were wondering whether or not we could use Shad as a compound for Shaddai, meaning a female deity, the strongest evidence for that, for that that we have in the biblical text is Genesis 49, verses 25 to 26. Jacob blesses Joseph by El, your father who helps you. So now we're seeing that this might be a collaborative relationship between El and Shaddai. And then by Shaddai, who blesses you with the blessings of heaven from above, the blessings of the deep crouching below, the blessings of breasts and womb. And so for those scholars who are thinking, maybe this may be a female deity, it's this verse um, that says, you know, this our thinking might be might be actually accurate. The literary and archaeological evidence for the Genesis deity Shaddai acting both independently of and in concert with the father L is connect in context. This is Mark Smith. It, I'm quoting is contextually and phonetically reasonable, if not scientifically persuasive. Um, now we come to Jubilees. Isaac and Ishmael are reunited and we're going to refer, go back to the bread or cakes. That the, the, the names are interchangeable. It's interesting that Rebecca makes new round cakes of new grain. This is Jubilees 22, 4 to 5. And she gave them to Jacob, her son, to take to Abraham, his father, from the first fruits of the land that, so that he might eat and bless the creator of all before he died could have been Abraham, but the fact that these are cakes I am suggesting is an opportunity for Abraham to make a last sacrifice to El Shaddai before he dies. Again, that's that's Fiona speaking. Now, let's go to the women. How are we doing on time? I have no idea. Are we all right on time? We're all right. Oh. <laughs> we'll, stay, we'll stay with you for as long as you want to go. Uh, okay. No one is bored. Oh, oh my God, that's okay. Splendid, splendid. Boredom is is death, really. Okay, so um, let's talk about Rebecca. So if you have a male and a female deity, as we just suggested, we have L and we have Shaddai, and you are pregnant and you're having issues with your pregnancy. To whom are you going to go, the male or the female deity? Of course, we're all going to go to the female deity, we women. You men won't because you you never are pregnant, um, which is unfortunate for you, actually. But we, we know the story. The children struggle together within her. And if she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire. The word in here is Lord. I'm contesting that. I am suggesting that that has been changed. And, the, and, and it should actually be um, Shaddai. We are, after all, in the patriarchal narratives, are we not? And so, the, as Shaddai said unto you, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people be, shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So it is to Rebecca that she makes this covenant, um, possibly because she's pretty sure that if she talks to Abraham, he's still going to go with a firstborn. And then the other person, the other woman in the patriarchal narratives is, of course, Hagar. And um, as we know from the biblical text, the relationship between Hagar and Sarah was anything but happy. In fact, Sarah is quite a brute. She's quite a bully. She does not come off well. Um, 
in in uh, in jubilees uh what what actually stimulates or in incentivizes uh, sarah to banish hagar and ishmael to their doom in the wilderness was actually um a dance and she watched abraham dancing with ishmael and that was that as i he loves ishmael too much i need to put a stop to this um so she's cast out and god heard the voice of the lad now there's there's definitely some messing about with this text it's quite obvious so you have the angel of God. It is true that angel and God can be used interchangeably. And I'm suggesting that is, this is not an angel of God because the pronoun changes to I. So, and God, obviously Shaddai, called to a Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar, fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him in thine hand. Difficult to do. Most scholars think that Ishmael was about 14 years old at this time. Then the change. For I will make him same blessing, same covenant. I will make him a great nation. And God, should I, opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God remains, Shaddai remains with the lad. I think we all sort of shift from Ishmael to Isaac. Now all our attention is on Isaac because the covenant is through him. But the fact of the matter is, is that Ishmael is not bereft of God's companionship. God remains with the lad as he grows, as he dwells in the wilderness to become an archer. All right, so we have been, we, I, think, I think I've exhausted it to death, but the covenant El Shaddai makes is of eternal increase. Um, it, it, seed without number, we would translate as immortality and eternal life. This is the covenant that she is making. So if we go back to the Garden of Eden, that same covenant is made. It, it is worded as a commandment, but given... Um, what we are seeing um, both with Noah, the same um, pro uh, promise of covenantal increase and seed without number, I, we need to re-engage uh, the narrative in Genesis with Eve. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after there in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. I don't have it. It's my fault. I should have. I think it's Abraham four, where the gods say we will cause them to be fruitful and multiply. Um, the pearl of great price is really indeed exactly that. It's full of pearls. But the idea in the book of Abraham is that we will create the situation in which they can become mortal, in which they can actually have progeny, which suggests that eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, also called the tree of wisdom, is absolutely vital for them in order to then eat from the tree of life. So the modes of worship we have seen are groves, high places, pillars, libations, incense, altar, bread, fire. But that fire is not going to be seen. Um, it's going to be seen most dramatically in the book of Moses with Shekinah. But I want to go back to Jeremiah 44, 17 to 19 to show that 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 the people in the time of Josiah were worshipping the female deity in exactly the same way that the patriarchs did. Now, this is supposed to be a condemnation, but Jeremiah repeats the way they worship, these women worship so many times that I think he's trying to, you know, let's keep this to posterity. I want everybody to understand that this is how we worshiped the feminine deity. 
So he's talking to a group of refugees who fled to Egypt um, from um, the southern kingdom because there are incursions being made um, by the Babylonians and things are not doing well. Um, And they say that. So uh, Jeremiah is supposed to be challenging them and the women respond. We will certainly do whatsoever thing goes forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven, to pour out drink offerings unto her, as we have done. We, our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. So it is universal. What they are saying is this mode of worship to the feminine deity has been performed by kings, princes, princes and our fathers. Then they say, for them, when we worshipped the queen of heaven, we had plenty of victuals and were well and saw no evil. But since we left off, here we go again, to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. And when we, third time, we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make her cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men, implying that the worship of the female deity was inclusive? The entire family was involved. What I think is very interesting is the kingdom lasted for about 360 years until Josiah. Then after Josiah um, purged um, or attempted to purge the kingdom of um, of the queen of heaven, of heavenly mother, the kingdom survived for another 22 years and then was completely destroyed. It was not long after. So now we're going to jump into fire um, with Shekinah. So <laughs> we always assume that it is, um, it is Lord and Yahweh, Yahweh and the Lord Yahweh is actually introduced um, at the very beginning of the Exodus narrative, but he doesn't take over. It's not a takeover by Yahweh. And it's not a replacement of the feminine deity either. Um, One, we have the burning tree. So this is the first time we have fire associated with um, the tree of life, with the menorah, with Heavenly Mother. Um, It's a bush. It's more than likely a tree. Um, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire. Here we've got the angel of the Lord again, um, or the angel out of the midst of a tree and he looked and behold the tree burned with fire and the tree was not consumed i think this is interesting because we're going to see this generally the feminine deity no always in the book of moses um, appears in a pillar of fire or in a cloud that overshadows this is a really important female verb argon hovering it refers to um, the spirit hovering over the the void in um, at the beginning of Genesis, um, the idea of the spirit hovering over a Christ at his baptism, and of course, Holy Spirit as Shekinah and Shaddai are feminine. If the nouns are feminine, obviously the pronouns and the adjectives will be, but what is more important, the verbs will also be feminine. So it's very very difficult to extract oneself from this. So Shekinah, she is the deity of the Old Testament. It's Shekinah, the name Shekinah is not mentioned in Exodus, really important to know. But Shekinah is a derivative of the biblical verb shakan, the act of dwelling. And when she is hovering over the people, it's called overshadowing, which we see again repeated in Luke, the spirit overshadowed Mary. It is a feminine activity. Whenever the original Hebrew biblical text speaks of a manifestation of God through which he was perceived by man, the Targum Onkelos interpolates the term Shekinah. For instance, the verse, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell, Shakanti, among them, is rendered by the Targum Onkelos as follows. 
Let them make before me a sanctuary that my Shekinah may dwell among them. One of the names of the wilderness tabernacle was Mishkan, meaning dwelling or abode. According to Rabbi Yahushua, as soon as the tabernacle was created, the Shekinah descended and dwelt among the people. And a lot of these quotes are from a really fabulous Jewish scholar by the name of Raphael Patai. Therefore, any desecration of either the wilderness tabernacle or temple was the height of disrespect to her personally. Um, Okay, as we've talked about the verbs, Shekinah as a female entity was kept in the forefront of consciousness by every statement made about her. Such a pervasive presence was Shekinah in the old Elohistic tradition that it was she who was seen to have made her abode in the wilderness tabernacle. Not surprising. The menorah is there. The tree of life is there. It is her. She is there. Um, The Ark of the Covenant is there, but it um, it, it, it is primarily the menorah. Um, By contrast, Yahweh merely put in temporary appearances in the tent of the meeting. He was a visiting deity. Shekinah overshadowed, here we have it, Argon, feminine, the people in a cloud by day and stood guard over the people in a pillar of fire by night. It is said that it is she who brought the people out of Israel. It is she who accompanies Yahweh on the mountain in fire and cloud, where Moses communed with deity for 40 days. In general, it was an accepted article of faith that wherever their exile took the people of Israel, whether to Egypt, to Babylonia, or to Edom, Rome, the Shekinah went along with them, and she would remain with them until the time of their redemption. The Shekinah joins the sick to comfort them, helps those who are in need, and she walks every day with those whose heart is broken and whose spirit is low, which of course reminds us of that beautiful baptismal covenant that we have made. Acts of kindness by non-Hebrews drew the Shekinah, as did hospitality, even by idolaters. When the prophets of Baal practiced hospitality, the Shekinah descended and rested upon them. And this is also another story I'm being reminded of. Um, And I can't remember the name. I think it's Elijah. So somebody correct me um, if that's not true. But there is this big contestation with the gods. Sort of my God is bigger and better than your God thing. And um, Elijah invites the priests of Baal and the priests of Jezebel um, which is, of course, the, the priestesses of and the priests of Asherah to this great um, conflagration between the gods. And of course, um, the god of the Hebrews wins. It is interesting that while the priests of Baal are all killed, the priests of Asherah are not. Suggesting, as have many scholars, that the worship of the female divine Shaddai, Shekinah, Asherah, wisdom were legitimate in 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 the um, in the Hebrew history. Um, additional epithets for Shekinah include shining face. So when we look at that beautiful um, uh, um, uh, blessing, may the Lord make His face to shine upon you. It's beautiful you've got once you start adding these all up it's almost overwhelming um shekinah is also known as the presence of the lord um which we see in psalm 31 16 67 183 i don't have time to read them and then margaret barker who is probably the preeminent um theologian on the feminine divine suggests that the greatest shining forth of shekinah as the glory, that is also her name. So when we have at the nativity, the glory of the Lord shan round about, I'm pretty sure that his mother would be close by and that the glory represents her shining. Uh, presence and Asherah is the law, is the transfiguration of the Lord in the New Testament, in which the gospel writer describes Christ's clothing as shining, exceeding white as snow, as no full on earth can white them, 
and a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved or chosen son, hear him. The Hebrew scholar Raphael Pattaya suggests in his book, The Hebrew Goddess, that the Shekinah, the cloud of glory, which dwelt in the Holy of Holies of the first temple, is another name for the Holy Spirit. When, therefore, a Talmudic teacher speaks of the Holy Spirit, he may as well use the term Shekinah, because the Holy Spirit, like the Shekinah, is feminine and is considered to have an opinion, a mind, a will, and a personality of her own. Um, so, the, you know, this is, I don't know, I just find this incredibly exciting. We have a hymn, actually, that we sing. Uh, it's hymn number 83, and these are verses 1 and 2. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, feed us till the Savior comes. Open Jesus Zion's fountains, let her richest blessing come. Let the fiery, cloudy pillar guard us to this holy home. And then just to end this, um, it's been a very exciting discussion for me <laughs> because I am so much in love with uh, this beautiful idea. Um, but if we look at the Book of Mormon, what starts the Book of Mormon? A pillar of light descends upon a rock. And and this piece with, I think this suggests a collaboration because a rock is generally we call it revelation. I think I am still prefer, preferring the traditional reading of the rock as Christ, which would then be the joining of um, of the mother and the son. And then I think the Book of Mormon is probably most important to my mind to the two visions, the two visions that dominate the text are Lehi's vision and Nephi's vision in which the tree of life is central to both. Lehi is much more interested in the fruit of the tree. Nephi is more interested in the tree itself, but it is suggested in the text that the tree of life um, is heavenly mother and that her fruit is the sun. And, And so that's, that's really beautiful. We also have wisdom emphasized, emphasized at the beginning of the restoration, actually, um, in DNC 6 and 11, where we are asked to seek for wisdom, for when we do, we shall find eternal life. And it is interesting that Limhi um, suggests that the demise of his people is because they would not follow wisdom, neither would they allow her to rule over them. So for me, I'm finding in the Book of Mormon some really beautiful generative examples of a Heavenly Mother being um, key to that particular narrative. And then, of course, when we go to the beginning of the Restoration, what does Joseph see? A pillar of light descending and out of the pillar of light. And we notice as we as we um, touched upon very early on in 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 this discussion, um, that the the pillar of light does not consume, does not burn. And Joseph, in one of the um, the first vision narratives, was just stunned that the fire was so bright, and yet it did not consume the trees that were around. So so we we have this in our tradition as well. It's it's moving over. Um, and where I think, quite frankly, the Book of Mormon celebrates Heavenly Mother in particularly those two visions, and then in the idea that wisdom was also considered to be female and um, and a reigning deity. So um, I know I have um, gone way over my time, but those those are the comments I have for today. Um, if I had all day, I'd go on more about wisdom and Ashra, but we don't. Um, so we have the we have the first first two anyway. Thank you. Thank you so much, Fiona. Um, I don't 
you probably haven't been paying attention to the chat, but no one has been bored. We could probably okay. stay here all day. Oh, and I'm so glad. Are, are eager to get a copy of the video or the podcast to come back and listen and and take in a, a, a more um, of your of your words and wisdom. Um, well, I think. So, and I was also going to say, if I, I, I try to um, make reference to all of the um, the quotations, the citations. But if I haven't, I am I am more than welcome to um, send you the citations to distribute. Um, if, if 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 I forgot to mention them, they are they are in the text. Oh, great! Um, people have been asking and hoping <laughs> for such a thing, and we're also um, looking forward to. We hope a book. Yes. Uh, yes. 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 Definitely. Um, and I am terribly excited about this and, 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 and being invited to give this presentation. It was just so beautiful too, because I, I chose this, you know, Taylor was kind enough to say, well, which of these four um, lessons would you like? And I thought, well, you know, I love Mosiah 18 for the baptismal covenants, but you know, quite honestly, that was the first time I'd seen God almighty in Mosiah. And I thought, what? We can do both. <laughs> we can talk about Shaddai as well. There she is right there in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> well, um, thank you. I think that we'll go ahead and um, finish up and just um, sit with your words today and come back to them. Um, thank you so much for helping us to recover some of these plain and precious lost things. Um, I know that um, I'll especially be thinking about um, this idea. This is, this is helping me to rethink the idea of collaboration with deity. Um, if we can expand our notion of deity and re-engage um, with these narratives and scriptures and um, history in this way. Um, thank you for helping us heal a little bit from our woundedness. And um, we will look forward um, to the podcast and video. Um, it should be up later today, so everyone look for that. Uh, join us next week for a lesson on Mosiah uh, 25 through 28 by former Dialogue editor Bob Reese. And our closing prayer today will be offered by Dialogue Foundation board member Zachary Davis, who's helped with the Dialogue Podcast Network and other initiatives that are taking us into the future. Um, it's been really important and he's joining us today from his home in Boston. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful to have come together to learn from this wonderful lesson. And we're grateful for Fiona's preparation and her research and her generous sharing of these ideas. We're grateful that we can uh, still find ways to gather together as saints and to strengthen one another in our faith and in our commitments. And we ask a blessing uh, upon all of us uh, this week with peace um, and uh, succor and um, that all those who are struggling um, and in need of thy grace can find it. And we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Um, I think we were up to 378 at the highest on the webinar that I saw. And I know that Michael got Facebook Live going at some point. So probably, I don't know, a couple hundred or more there, I'm guessing. And many more will tune into the podcast and, and video later. So thank you so much. Thank you. It has been my honor and my privilege. It's been a beautiful way to spend a Sabbath day morning. I am so grateful. Thank you. Beautiful indeed. Yeah.